I am Brother Cornell West. This is Chris Hedges. I'm Rosa Clemente. Hey, what's up? This is Chuck D, Public Enemy Prophets of Rage. And this is News Beat. Dr. Homer Venters, the former chief medical officer of New York City's jails, back in a Newsbeat episode in March. Jails and prisons promote the spread of communicable disease. People are in very close contact. They often don't have access to basic uh, hand washing. They're very, these are generally dirty um, and very poor and have poor infection control practices. Uh, these places also have chronic understaffing of both security staff and health staff. And so many of the ways in which these buildings and places are designed and run promotes the spread of communicable disease. And then we have health systems in these places that will be trying to prepare for this outbreak. Uh, but those are not health systems that are run by or even really connected with the kind of health systems that we're used to in the community that use basic standards of infection control and even data reporting and transparency about who's getting tested. And so I have grave concerns about the patients. Uh, and that's really the most important part of this. We've filled up our jails and prisons with people who are disproportionately people of color, but also people with serious physical and behavioral health problems. So people that are, who are at high risk. Uh, and uh, the push of mass incarceration from the 80s and 90s and 2000s means that we have many older patients in these places too. So it really is a, a confluence uh, of, of worst possible scenarios. And we have people working in these places and uh, detained in these places that are looking at really a very perilous and, and looming threat. Hey everyone, this is Manny Faces, producer and host of the award-winning Newsbeat podcast. And that voice you heard was Dr. Homer Venters, the former chief medical officer of New York City's jails, back in a Newsbeat episode in March, warning of a perilous looming threat that COVID-19 was posing on jails and prisons. Uh, the great Russian novelist Fyodor Dostoevsky once stated that the degree of civilization in a society can be judged by entering its prisons. In other words, how a nation treats its prisoners is a direct reflection of that country's values. Well, this episode continues our coverage of mass incarceration and the U.S. prison industrial complex, the largest in the world, with more than 2.3 million people incarcerated within its jails and prisons many of whom have never even been convicted, and how that system is failing horribly at protecting inmates from the deadly wrath of the novel coronavirus, COVID-19. Now, as you'll hear from our guests, the exact numbers of those infected and those who've died behind bars are hard to come by for a multitude of reasons. Those cited in this episode are constantly being updated, but to be sure, the virus keeps spreading, the body count continues to rise, and marginalized communities and those of color are consistently affected at incredibly higher rates than the rest of the U.S. population. Inmates themselves are infected at 5.5 times the typical rate, according to one of our guests. As news about states easing or strengthening lockdowns and the upcoming election dominates mainstream media, we feel it's incredibly important to keep a light shined on the most vulnerable among us, including prisoners, we think their families just might too. Breaking all of this down for us on this episode are Danielle Harris, Managing Attorney in the San Francisco Public Defender's Integrity Unit, 
Sharon Dolovich, professor of law at UCLA School of Law and director of the UCLA Prison Law and Policy Program and its COVID-19 Behind Bars Data Project, and Emily Widra, research analyst at the nonprofit Prison Policy Initiative, which among its work recently issued a report giving states responses to the COVID-19 pandemic in jails and prisons failing grades. Now, as always, please take a moment to rate and review us wherever you listen to podcasts and check out usnewsbeat.com to read a full-length accompanying article for this episode. Remember that many of our prior episodes feature incredible lyrical contributions from independent hip-hop artists and really give us a unique way of telling these stories. Uh, Of course, because of COVID-19, we're a little bit limited with our artist participation, but stay tuned. It's coming back. Uh, We'll be whole again soon. In the meantime, once again, I'm Newsbeat's producer and host, Manny Faces. And on behalf of our entire Mori Creative Studios and Newsbeat teams, I wish you safety, health, and enlightenment out there during these incredibly trying times. All right, here it is. This is Death Sentence. COVID-19 cases are soaring in jails and prisons. So the state of California has had many different responses to the outbreak of coronavirus vis-a-vis jails and prisons. Today, activist prisoners and their families are demanding action to stop what they're calling a brewing public health crisis at San Quentin State Prison. This evening, we are getting a firsthand account of what it is like inside San Quentin after more than a thousand inmates have tested positive for COVID-19. It's so filthy, contaminated, and ridden with germs. They're not sweeping the tears. They're not mopping the tears. They're not cleaning the handrails. They're not wiping off the door handles. They're just being lazy and giving us the bare minimum. Of course, because we have so many jurisdictions, we're a large state. So all the prisons are under one entity, the California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation. But all of the jails are under individual counties. And so there have been an array of different responses. Demonstrators chained themselves to the gate in front of California Governor Gavin Newsom's Sacramento home, calling for mass release of prison inmates statewide due to COVID-19 outbreaks in the state's prisons. But we are particularly focused about San, on San Quentin because San Quentin has had one of the worst outbreaks anywhere. The response of the state in terms of the situation in prisons has been the exact opposite of what we want it to be in that the state caused the outbreak at San Quentin in particular by transferring incarcerated people from another prison that was in the throes of an outbreak to San Quentin without having done recent and confirmed recent negative tests on all of those people. Before that happened, San Quentin had no cases of COVID-19. Now there is an infection, the rate that, that just surpasses anything, anything we've seen anywhere. So it's at about 68% right now of the people in San Quentin have been infected. The spread began when the California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation transferred nearly 200 incarcerated people from a prison in Chino with a massive COVID outbreak to San Quentin and another prison. Outbreaks soon began at each prison where people had been transferred. At least 19 incarcerated people in California have now died died from COVID-19. This follows months of calls for mass release. There is no such thing as six-foot distancing in a carceral setting. 
while some of us would have liked to see it become possible with a very, very aggressive early approach to decarceration, we have seen decreasing populations in certain facilities for sure, but nowhere to the extent needed to allow folks to have a six-foot buffer at all times in all directions. So we still have people in San Francisco sharing bunk beds, you know, one person on the top bunk, one person on the bottom bunk. In certain of the facilities in San Francisco, because we have more than one jail in San Francisco, there's multiple bunk beds in one cell. So you not only have someone on top or on bottom, you have someone next to you within arm's reach. Then in the prisons, I mean, the, pri- the cells in San Quentin, for example, are four foot by nine foot cells housing two people. So you can touch the sides of the cell with your arms, even if you're not a particularly big person. And then there's all kinds of issues with ventilation and open bars. They call that an open cell block setting. And so, uh, no, the rules that we are all being constantly reminded to follow are impossible in a jail and prison setting still. In the beginning, it almost like hadn't, like they hadn't gotten the word inside the prison initially, and they were still sending everybody to eat together uh, and out in the yard together and not making any real changes in the spring, I would say. And then when the outbreak happened, Eventually, it went to a full lockdown situation with no recreation, no phone calls even, no legal calls. There was a time when, and it's getting a little bit better now, but there was a period not very long ago where we couldn't even communicate with clients except through mail. And all kinds of responses. Folks that have tested positive being put in cells or left in cells with people who had tested negative. No hot food, no adequate medical care so that people who were symptomatic were kind of being told to sweat it out unless they had reached a sort of highly, highly advanced level. 25 incarcerated people have died. One staff member has died. I would sort of summarize the the feeling of folks who are locked in San Quentin as as terrified. And, you know, if they didn't already feel before, like, society had forgotten them, now that they are, feel that their lives are, are every day in danger, they sure feel that way now. Now to some developing news. 20 inmates, 20 inmates, 20 inmates at the Jefferson County Jail have te- te- tested positive, positive for COVID-19. The number of positive COVID-19 tests among those in Ohio prisons, it just keeps going. It just keeps going up. Yeah. yeah, within the last hour, the Ohio Department of Rehabilitation and Correction now says more than 4,100 4, inmates and staff members have tested positive. And Durham County Sheriff Clarence Burke had announced eight inmates held at the detention center there have tested positive for COVID-19. Prisons across Texas are a hotspot for COVID-19. Speaking correctional facility, 155 inmates have tested positive for COVID-19. COVID-19 cases are multiplying, are multiplying in the jail. 26 inmates have tested positive for COVID-19. continue to surge. Florida is also seeing an increase in the number of new infections at prisons and also juvenile justice facilities. 
We started collecting data pretty much at the beginning when Departments of Corrections started posting data on their dashboards, on their websites, and that was about the third week of March. So we, since the third week of March, have been collecting infection rates and COVID deaths for as many prisons and jails around the country as are providing that information. Uh, now we have about 1,600 facilities on our site. It's hard actually to give you a kind of sense of the entire sweep of the pandemic in prisons because there are many facilities that aren't reporting any cases and any deaths, or you'll see maybe a facility with 2,000 people that has seven infections and you know that they're not really testing. So I, I preface my response to the question of how bad the pandemic is inside by giving you a feel for why the data itself is incomplete. But based on the data, we have been able to calculate disparities on infections and deaths inside prison as opposed to the general public. And what I can tell you is that people in American prisons are infected at 5.5 times the number that you see in the general population. Once you adjust for age, because people in prison are on average younger than people in the society in general, and people in the society in general, because they're older, you have many more people who are over the age of 65 who are likely to die from the virus. What we found is once you adjust for age, people are dying by a factor of three inside. So by any measure, that's, that's a real crisis. COVID-19 is sweeping, sweeping through, the country. through the country's jails, jails and, prisons. and prisons. They have proven to be a breeding ground for contagion with tight quarters, tight quarters that don't allow room for social distancing, shortages of cleaning supplies, lack of protective gear like masks. Some prison systems and jails have been releasing inmates early to free up space, but people we spoke to inside say it is too little, too, little, too late. Too late. Right now, we only have a very small number of jails that are reporting anything. They typically are, let's say, the 100 biggest systems in the country. So we'll have reporting from LA County Jail and Rikers and Cook County and Miami-Dade. But there are 3,200 county jails and the vast majority of them are reporting no information. It's not to say that there are no cases and there are no deaths. It's just that they are not providing the information to the public. One of the things that I have been extremely troubled by since this pandemic started is the lack of transparency. There's a culture of secrecy that has been allowed to fester in American carceral facilities. It's antithetical to the democratic project, right? These are public institutions where members of society are sent because we collectively have decided that they need to suffer some criminal penalty, but they're still citizens and these are institutions run on behalf of the people. So the people who are running them, in my view, should have the attitude that they owe the public access to as much information as they can possibly collect as to what's happening inside. But instead, what you see is a chronic culture of underreporting and dissembling and secrecy, which I think is completely inappropriate. And people are dying because of it. Because if you're not telling us what's going on, then policy around what to do about the problem can't really respond to what's happening because we don't even know what's happening. It's become a familiar sight at the Cook County Jail as an ambulance, an ambulance loaded up outside the building. Almost everyone walking in and out, shielded with masks and gloves. COVID-19 cases are multiplying, are multiplying in the jail, which, which now houses 830, 830 fewer detainees since the beginning of the stay-at-home order, hundreds due to coronavirus concerns. At the beginning of the pandemic, it really looked like jails had reduced their populations you know, through numerous methods. 
releases, of course, included, but also reducing bringing the number of people into jails via arrests and warrants and that kind of thing, prosecutors deciding not to charge. And so those policy changes resulted in sort of a median jail population reduction of about 30%, which is pretty significant and it happened rather quickly over the first weeks and months after the CDC declared the pandemic and people started pointing out that jails and prisons would be incredibly unsafe places during a respiratory pandemic. So those different methods, some jurisdictions used both releases and reducing intakes, all kinds of different things like that. There's a huge variety and it's really hard even to know which jurisdictions used which methods because a lot of places they're not even being clear about whether they released a lot of people or they stopped intaking people. It's it's a whole variety so it's hard to pin down kind of exactly what specifically led to that reduction at the beginning of the pandemic and then moving past May these jail populations have started to creep back up and in some places they're above their March jail populations, which is pretty startling given that we are still in the midst of a huge pandemic that is clearly taking place in jails across the country. We have been able to track roughly 85,000 people having been released from jails around the country as a response to corona and roughly 35,000 people being released from prison. And you might say, you know, it's a fair number of people, 120,000 people. But what's striking is the small number of people who have been released, especially from prison, because what you're talking about in the jail context is a number of people who are in custody without having had a conviction. And so there was a lot of low-hanging fruit for jail officials, and I give them a lot of credit from the beginning to try to identify which populations could be safely released and releasing them. Right now, more than 2 million Americans are sitting behind bars as the coronavirus outbreak deepens. Many prison systems have ended in-person visiting for loved ones. Inmates say there's little they can do to avoid catching the virus. You may start the conversation now. One inmate who preferred not to use his full name described the conditions inside the Missouri prison where he's serving time for murder. Well, we have masks. They just gave us something that they can call a mask, but the staff are not required to wear a mask at this time. We keep trying to reason with them, well, we need the staff to wear it because uh, they're the only ones that can bring it in here. We don't get cleaning chemicals for ourselves. If you can afford Ajax, the only thing you clean your field with is Ajax. My main concern is the ventilation system because uh, they don't have no air blowing out. I cough in my field. And if it's germs in it, it can go to the next cell or whatever. We all hooked up together. If one person get it, one person get it. We all got it. When we first did this analysis in May, prisons had been moving much, much slower than jails. They are definitely larger and less manageable systems than county jails, which a sheriff can be the main administrator of. Prison systems are a lot more clunky to maneuver around, but they were reducing their populations across the board, but very, very small decreases. In May, when we looked at this, it was about a 5% was the average prison population reduction, which is incredibly small when compared to jail population reductions of over a third. So that was pretty startling. And then as we look again in at the end of July at these uh, prison populations, they have continued to decrease. So unlike jails where we're seeing sort of a bouncing back up of jail populations, the prison populations seem to be 
continuing on this decline, but still very, very slowly. Even in states where there have been large numbers of releases, for example, California, there's been reports of thousands of people released weeks and months early. And yet, at the end of July, California state prisons were still over 100% of their capacity. So they're still overcrowded. There's still no way to socially distance or to um, separate people who are sick. And so these prison population changes have occurred, and yet they're just not nearly enough to actually protect people. We did another report where we graded all 50 states on their response to the COVID-19 pandemic. And we used a number of different criteria to award points, including providing personal protective equipment, masks to both incarcerated people and staff, testing capacity if they tested everybody, if they were trying to test everybody, or if they were only testing people who were sick. So all those kinds of practical measures, and then also things like how many people they'd released from prisons and jails in that state and what proportion of their incarcerated population had been released. Those criteria are really what led to states having such low scores. Even though we tried to figure out a way to make them more understandable and not give everybody a failing grade, so we tried to award points for you know executive orders that released people, regardless of how many people were released. We tried to award points for and still across the board, states which include their jail and prison populations have had shockingly terrible responses to this pandemic, primarily because they're keeping so many people inside when we know that that's the primary reason that this disease is spreading amongst incarcerated people. Obviously, most of the people that we're representing are incarcerated in county jail. I would say that everybody we got released should have been released, even if the coronavirus had never existed. But it has tipped the scales for the decision makers, usually the judges, in deciding pro or against releasing someone. So it has helped us get more people released as it has become more dangerous to keep people in prison or jail. You'll see a lot of people argue against releases from prisons, saying that the coronavirus shouldn't be some windfall for folks. There hasn't been a windfall. There has been an outbreak of a deadly and dangerous disease, and though people are sentenced to serve these sentences, they are not sentenced to die while serving them. And people are dying. People are dying. Well, thanks for listening. Once again, this is Manny Faces, Newsbeat's producer and host. So now that you've listened to this episode and heard about what's happening, it's time to get involved. Learn more about Danielle Harris and the incredible work of the San Francisco Public Defender's Integrity Unit at sfpublicdefender.org. Check out more of Sharon Dolovich's amazing work, UCLA School's Prison Law and Policy Program and its COVID-19 Behind Bars Data Project at aw.ucla.edu and visit prisonpolicy.org to read the latest research, blogs, analyses, and more by Emily Widra and her team at the Prison Policy Initiative. And consider donating to their cause or even volunteering. Remember, the first step of changing something or solving a problem is to become aware of its existence. Now that you know, consider doing something about it. 
At the very least, you can share this episode with your friends, family, and colleagues. It's important for this information to get out, and we hope that we present it to you in a compelling manner that is worth sharing. Check out all of our previous episodes and more at usnewsbeat.com or search for Newsbeat wherever you listen to podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Stitchers, Spotify, you know where to go. Newsbeat, two words, one love. A huge thank you once again from the entire Newsbeat squad as well as our parent company, Maury Creative Studios. Once again, this is Manny Faces signing off. Stay positive, stay healthy, and most importantly, stay strong. Peace.